You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode 290, BJA Fellowship Review with Derek Marsh. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Today we have back a frequent guest of ours, Sandy, our Associate Director here at the Global Center for Women and Justice, Derek Marsh. Derek, so glad to have you back with us. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. So, Derek, you were adjunct here before you retired from Westminster Police Department, where you started the first iteration of the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force. Before you came, though, to work here as the Associate Director at the Global Center, you did a BJA fellowship. So I thought it would be really fun for us to talk about what that looked like. BJA means Bureau of Justice Assistance. So let's talk about that. What was your purpose and why did you take on an absolute gargantuan task? Well, (laughs) it was a task of pleasure, I got to tell you. I really enjoyed my time with BJA as a fellow in in human trafficking. I'd just retired in 2013. They put out a notice, much like a solicitation for a grant. And I, I, for a change, I wrote for, I wrote a grant for me as opposed to other people. And I, I was lucky enough to be selected to participate. So I went from 2015 through 2018 as a fellow, a visiting fellow in human trafficking with the Bureau of Justice Assistance. And my major focus was labor trafficking, understanding promising practices about how people were pursuing it, how they were investigating it, how they discovered it, even somehow how they prosecuted it. My hope was to reinforce some studies that had gone on before. And that was my initial start in working with the BJA. I've talked about this with some of my students, and they did not get the idea of what a fellow is and why it isn't gender-specific. Can you explain what that actually entails? Sure. The BJA and OVC and other programs as well, they will bring people out from the field, if you will, who are actively practicing the field or have recently practiced in the field on different topics. There was a person there when I was there dealing with prisons and incarceration issues. There was a People there dealing with victim service agencies and non-government organizations. It it really depends on what their need is. And so what they do is they bring folks in who have expertise in these different fields, and they basically have them work on a project related to their expertise, which then can be contributed to the OVC, BGA, or whatever DOJ group is, is sponsoring them so that they have a little bit more expertise when putting together solicitations and other issues regarding the particular topic, again, for me, being human trafficking. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. So your primary focus was labor trafficking, but also you were looking at the collaborative process, right? Correct. I Obviously, no one does this as an island, so... There was the under, I wanted to understand how labor trafficking was pursued, but I understood that with labor trafficking, there is a distinctive collaborative element. And my curiosity was 
is a collaboration focused on labor trafficking equivalent to a generic human trafficking collaboration for a task force? Or does it have a little difference from sex trafficking to labor trafficking? Okay, so what was your original intention? Well, my original intention was to (laughs) investigate how people were pursuing labor trafficking. And so I was trying to figure out like better practices, promising practices with regards to investigations, case development, prosecution strategies. But what I found was that still after the task forces have been around since 2003, as far as solicitations go, most task forces were not pursuing labor trafficking actively. They would take a case if it fell on their lap, but they wouldn't proactively pursue it. And so I switched my view from what are you doing and how are you doing it to how do we get more people or how do we get more task forces to be established and developed to focus more on labor trafficking. So I love the fact that you use the word proactive investigations because just yesterday I was having a conversation here in Orange County. And when I mentioned labor trafficking, they interrupted and said, oh, we have a much bigger problem with sex trafficking. And I was, I smiled and said, that's because that's what we're looking for. It is harder to look for labor trafficking. So if you have a really good track record of convictions on sex trafficking, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no labor trafficking. Well, we do what we were, we're comfortable doing. We, it's kind of low-laying fruit. And I'm not minimizing the pursuit of sex trafficking. I think it's critical to the human trafficking movement. And honestly, without sex trafficking, whether it's foreign and more currently more emphasized on domestic in the United States, human trafficking wouldn't be as relevant and consistently pursued as it is today. However, when you look at NGO non-government organizations and their work with victim survivors of human trafficking, many of them have higher numbers of victim survivors who are labor trafficking victims than they do sex trafficking. And that tells me that we are missing cases across the board. And it's not just in California. It's just not in New York. It's not just in Florida. It's everywhere. Everywhere across the board, Wherever you go, there are always at least some labor trafficking, a significant sum of labor trafficking victims that are being addressed, at least on the NGO social services side, even if the law enforcement side, the task force, isn't pursuing those investigations. So this really turned into an action research project. And so you had to figure out how to gather the data to fulfill your fellowship. So how did you connect with task forces? How did you get them to cooperate? I was, again, the OBC, Office of Victims of Crime, and BJA, where I was stationed at, are actually in the same building, by the way, on different floors. But they were super supportive. And without their help and their advice and their mentorship, I wouldn't be able to figure it out myself. But what it came down to is we were pursuing regional training through OVC BGA, which allowed me to meet task forces, both that were federally funded and non-federally funded. I also was able to connect with various task force folks telephonically. This is before Zoom was an active issue. And then obviously, I was also very fortunate to be allowed to actually travel to at least, I would say 20, if not more, sites to actually visually observe 
and part and not necessarily participate, but to to kind of walk along, if you will, to see how people were were pursuing or not pursuing labor trafficking cases. Okay, so you've already identified that most of the labor trafficking cases kind of fell into their hands, but were rarely like actively pursued. There wasn't like an intentional outreach, intentional proactive investigation strategies. So what were the challenges that made task forces ill-equipped, is that too much to say, to really understand how to develop a proactive strategy? Well, I, I would I would say they're they're equipped. I would say that the the emphasis they were pursuing was more sex trafficking focused. And if we look for a context, I would say around 2009, the enhanced collaborative model solicitation came out where both the NGO and the law enforcement task forces were expected to write a mutual request, a solicitation to show that they were interacting with each other and they were mutually supporting each other. And at that same time, the emphasis shifted from foreign national human trafficking to domestic. And that that was a, a shift that needed to happen. I'm not minimizing that. But because of that, the emphasis before, because a lot of labor trafficking, you know, the majority we've run into, has been foreign national based. Once that shift went to domestic, and, and specifically domestic minor sex trafficking, the world shifted because now you were dealing with a topic which law enforcement had an extensive experience with because vice investigations are part and parcel of what you're doing in law enforcement all the time. At least one group or one person or one detective has that responsibility just about at every PD that has more than 25 personnel. And so they immediately begin to go for, again, the low-laying fruit, their experience with these vice type of investigations. And it became almost an immediate shift. And if you look at the numbers as reported in the tip reports, you can see that in 2009, I believe, there was actually more labor trafficking than sex trafficking. It's the only time that in the 22 years of the TVPA that it's been documented as such, at least from the federal level. And then immediately you see the, the, the graph like separate and sex trafficking investigations just skyrocket and labor trafficking d- dives. And this last tip report, trafficking persons report, showed like I think there's – if you look at the percentages, not the numbers, 97% of the cases federally reported – were sex trafficking, whereas 3% were labor trafficking. And I know that they're trying harder to focus on labor trafficking. I'm not trying to minimize those efforts or, or the results of those efforts, but that just, just that's a huge disparity. And it doesn't represent the victim survivor pool that we have throughout the U.S. Okay, so what's the, what's the answer to that? Well, there, there is, I don't know if there's one answer. I think I, I recommended a number of things in my final paper with the BJA, and they were very open. And I, I've, I've seen some changes along the way. And just because I recommended it doesn't mean it had to be done, right? I mean, there, there are realities as far as being able to support and finance things. So I don't mean to say that my my own, only my answers were right. However, I think that really to change how you successfully pursue labor trafficking had to do with understanding what success was. Because in the past, success, and again, BJA and ODVC have been changing this dramatically before my, and into my initial fellowship, 
it, it was a numbers game. It's like, how many arrests can you make? How many contacts can you make? How many can you document to show that you're busy? And that makes sense. But then as you begin to look at more qualitative issues, then you want to start saying, well, how many of these are sex versus labor trafficking? Why is there, there a disparity that way? Why is your NGO showing half of their victim survivors are labor trafficking, but your investigations only show one or two labor trafficking investigations per year? So it's that disparity that you have to look at. And a lot of it came as a result of the way we define success. Labor trafficking cases usually take much longer to pursue. They're frequently, he said, she said, we're going to have one or two people that can confirm there's no actual evidence later you can do. They are hugely victim survivor based, which makes it problematic. And really a cornerstone of many cases is on the victim survivor. If they choose not to cooperate, the prosecution is without help. However, the, what I'm talking about definition of success, I think it's also important to think that even if you may not criminally be able to prove something, that instead we could look at things like administrative sanctions, civil remedies to like sue the, the suspects or the suspect groups, if it's a business or an organization, to provide financial recompensation for how these people were treated, exploited, or labor trafficked. I think that's important to pursue. Also, I want to focus on the fact that even getting someone or pursuing a T visa or any kind of status here in, in the U.S. would be considered a win, if you will, towards labor trafficking. So I think that was that was one major component of looking at these, just redefining what success and measuring success entails for labor trafficking. So when when I've had conversations with particularly law enforcement officers, they're very frustrated by the lack of prosecution quickly. And it, they make an arrest. They think this should go down in their in their stats. And then it like almost evaporates. And that's very disheartening. And so it sounds from your perspective that we actually need to have a new way of looking at this. And it reminded me of a previous episode where we interviewed the civil attorneys on and Rena, and we'll put the, the link in the show notes, but they were able through a civil case to establish a labor trafficking case in a way that was much more difficult in a criminal case. And when I try to explain that, I'm not good at that because I'm not the law enforcement person. So I want you to explain why that makes a difference in prosecuting a case. Well, again, when you look at a civil case versus a criminal case, in a civil case, you're looking at preponderance of the evidence. You're looking at 50.1% is sufficient to find a suspect or a, or organization if we're looking at practices within the organization as being, being held responsible for promoting or allowing labor trafficking to occur under their watch or under their aegis or under the umbrella of that organization. Whereas if you go to a criminal trial, it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is like 99.9%. So there's a significant difference in what you have to prove and how much you have to prove. So civil remedies can be much more successful. I think the Human Trafficking Institute re repeatedly during their yearly reports has shown that most, a lot of labor trafficking cases have gone the civil route because it is a he said, she said. And it is important for us, if we're looking from a victim-centered, trauma-informed approach, that we 
do provide them as much potential for closure as we can. So yeah, maybe you cannot prosecute because you don't have that proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I respect that. I'm not, I'm not, not, I'm definitely not criticizing prosecutors for being responsible and not wasting our time in a sense, wasting the time of the court with cases that can't move forward. But I still think there are other remedies that can be had that not only promote our victims' accusations as being legitimate, but also provide some kind of monetary reimbursement so that they can move forward. Because they're here legitimately. Most of them come here legally anyway, according to reports. Over 70% come here legitimately, and they only come out of status once they try to get out of those conditions. So I don't think that we're really talking about people who are coming across the border out of status to begin with as a whole. There may be some. I'm not saying there aren't. But I think on the whole, these people have tried legitimately to go through and still have been taken advantage of, still been trafficked. And just by leaving because of the way our H2 visas work and things, and I know we're working on changing that, but currently that if you leave the person who sponsors you, you leave the organization that sponsors you, suddenly you're out of status. And I understand the need for that in, in the past, but that allows traffickers to have much more control over their victims than they should. So it's just a horrible, <laughs> almost uncha- a hard way to to come to a final conclusion. So forget that. Forget the prosecution if you have to from a criminal perspective. If you could do it from a civil perspective, sure, it's going to take more time. But we're used to labor trafficking taking years more than some sex trafficking cases. Uh, so, but at least the victims receive some kind of closure on the case, some validation for what's occurred to them, and some monetary recompense. So, and that restitution is part of the restorative justice that we've talked about here in the past. And it seems like it's more realistic to punish the the business, the company that's actually exploiting someone's labor and controlling their movements and their their just however they use them, whether it's in a cleaning company, a hotel, or out in the fields. So that punishment to the business perhaps has more of a deterrent effect than finding one person and prosecuting them and putting them in prison because the company has lots of other people. That's how I see it. No, and I agree. I think that, again, the idea here is not so much to create an impossible standard for people to try to prosecute cases that really aren't prosecutable in the normal sense of the term, but to find some kind of closure for our victims if we can. And how difficult, how do you arrest a corporation? How do you arrest an organization that is trafficking? I mean, you, you could pick individuals who are the primaries, and I, and I think that's legitimate. However, if it's a 50-50 chance, if you can prosecute someone versus a 90% chance you can civilly hold, hold the organization accountable, what makes more sense? I think it makes more sense to pursue that organization as long as it can be proved that they had some culpability in it. And that's and I'm not trying to give money away either. I don't want to make you think like I'm just the money tree or Santa Claus. I mean, every even criminal cases require restitution in these cases that be assessed against the people who traffic folks, whether it's sex or labor trafficking. So we're not asking for anything that they wouldn't get if there was a criminal prosecution as well. Okay, so what else can we do to be more successful in our anti-labor trafficking efforts? Well, I think another aspect of this is the task force and coalition members that we choose when we're looking at a generic task force are great. They're they're very focused. They have multiple issues we're focusing on. We have our NGOs. We have our psychological support. 
We have shelters, food, all these different people who are contributing businesses, faith-based community, as well as our state, local, federal, and law enforcement partners. So all of those are great. However, I think with labor trafficking, you have to focus more on those institutions that have labor in their title or labor in their expertise. Remember, again, that from a, from a local law enforcement perspective, labor isn't something we pursue. I mean, I remember going to cases where you, know, you have everything from people being upset about their wage to people being upset how their car was repaired. And all we would say is go to civil court, go to civil court, go to civil court. And that was the answer because we don't adjudicate civil issues. Whereas with labor trafficking, the, the initial impression may be, well, heck, that sounds like a civil problem, whether they got the wage you were promised or whether they were got enough breaks. I mean, that's not on me. And you're right. Exploitation itself isn't on law enforcement. However, labor trafficking investigations involve criminal activity, threats against people, threatening people with keeping their documents, of, of abuse, of like substandard housing, of not feeding people, of like making them exposed to hazardous conditions, that things like that. All of those are criminal activities. They aren't just labor things. So, but again, as law enforcement, we don't often deal with that. So we have to like team up with organizations that have that labor expertise. And we're talking about that. If you're talking about your documents, State Department is a great crew to do it. If you're looking at the labor itself, the Department of Labor Wage and Hour is, is critical. They also have an OIG department that can actually pr prosecute and pursue things on a criminal level too, whereas the Wage and Hour is more administrative and civilly focused. EEOC can be a part of things as well. You can team up with your local consulates to understand what the different populations at the communities are going through, because they would have insight into that as well. Your faith-based communities are huge, because a lot of them go to church, and the one thing they are allowed to do is go to church and participate in worship, and maybe th through those insights and understanding those people, you can get some insights to what's going on. So you want to compose your task force a little bit differently and to focus on those types of NGOs, non-government organizations that have expertise with contacting people in whatever field that they may be being exploited or trafficked in. And also you want to make sure that they're ethnically aware, culturally, you know, balanced perspectives and understand the language they're speaking so they can communicate better, understand exactly what's happening and feel a degree of trust. And I love that you mentioned that they often are, the victims are often allowed to attend a church. And we did a training for pastors years ago. And within two weeks, they identified three labor trafficking victims because of the trust that they had already built. And I think we have a tendency to expect law enforcement to be able to instantly identify and gain the trust for a victim to actually disclose. So because we're running out of time, I do want to go back to the task force model and what can we do from the law enforcement perspective to promote the anti-labor trafficking efforts that the enhanced collaborative model grants require as deliverables. Well, I think number one, when it comes to task forces, you have your different agencies have agency heads, whatever, whoever they or whoever they may be, male, female, doesn't matter to me. They need to lead from the front. And they need to like in, in, imbue or <laughs> enhance or just talk to their folks that are representing these task forces, let them know that labor trafficking is as much a priority as sex trafficking is. I'm not saying you, you ignore sex trafficking in case it comes, but you need to be able to make that happen. You also need to dedicate 
if you have, again, again, the resources, because we're in a world where resources are scarce, but if you have a resource, and I mean by resource people this time, to specifically pursue labor trafficking cases. Over and over again, I went to task forces that had split and say, well, there's sex trafficking, half sex trafficking, half labor trafficking. And guess what? It just doesn't work because every time a sex trafficking case comes around, and there are plenty of them, unfortunately, the person would be obligated, and rightfully so, to pursue that sex trafficking case. If you can isolate one person, say, all you do is labor trafficking, you have a much better chance of getting labor trafficking prosecution or at least a case generated. And finally, with that dedicated person, you need to go out into those areas where most law enforcement are not used to going into and interact on community groups to ethnic communities and and, and make those connections with those agencies that have already built rapport in those areas and try to establish that rapport. Because unfortunately, when it comes to foreign national victims, a lot of them don't trust law enforcement inherently. And especially if you don't speak the language and you don't look like them, then they have a tendency not to believe that you can support them or help them. And so it's, it goes a long way to having that person who's dedicated actually going out into the community and developing relationships with these different organizations because it's important. And it is kind of a PR job. I know most police are like, wow, I want to go out there and arrest people and put them. And I trust me, I sympathize with that 110%. But with labor trafficking, it's as much about building bridges and establishing rapport as it is about pursuing cases because most of your cases aren't going to be found in fact almost all of them are not going to be found by your officer driving down the street they're going to be found by these organizations who are out there interacting with field laborers or people in different industries that's how you're going to get your reports and find your potential labor trafficking cases that's the way you be proactive in labor trafficking wow so your fellowship gave you an opportunity to get a much broader perspective from all the way from New York to California. Right. And I, I can't thank them enough for that opportunity. I tell you what, I the fellowship was, I think, initially going to be 18 months, and they, they were very generous in extending it to be almost three years. And I, as law enforcement used to being behind the curtain and understanding who, who that, in the Wizard of Oz, you know, <laughs> that guy behind the curtain. And so it's always fun to be behind the curtain again, even after you retire and feel like you're in the know. And that having that fellowship gave me a perspective I never would have had before, understanding how the grand administrators and the policy advisors, who are all very enlightened, smart, dedicated people, work behind the scenes to try to make these task forces help our victim survivors become independent and not forget, but work through the issues they have as best they can with being victimized. They are true, truly humanitarian people, and it was a pleasure to be with them. And I just thank God every day that I had that opportunity to be with them at that time. Well, and we here at the Global Center are also very grateful because you brought all of that expertise to our anti-human trafficking certificate program that we launched and now we have a labor trafficking case. And so if you are listening, you have a law enforcement or victim service credential, and you have that kind of knowledge and you want to layer it with the specifics of the expertise around labor trafficking and policies and grants, deliverables, please take a look at our anti-human trafficking certificate program. Derek's been really vital in making sure it's cutting edge and in developing a dual pathway. Tell us about our 
professional development process? Oh, so we after several years of begging and pleading and stomping and with your support, we were able to establish now two different tracks. We have an academic track where you're actually getting college credits. If you need them, that's great. It is a more expensive track because it's per unit. There are three units per course, four courses for the certificate. These are paying for 12 units overall. However, there's a, a professional track. For those people who don't need those units, if you just want to learn the issues, and that that cost is $399 a course, which is significantly less than a normal course. You still do all the coursework minus the big paper, so you're welcome. But you still, get, <laughs> you still need it, and you still need to take the four courses. That, that, that doesn't minimize the, the requirement. But between the academic and the profession, we know there are so many people out there that just can't afford it. Being a private institution, our, our prices are what they are. But I think that now you can get a certificate for under $1,600, whereas before, I was barely one course or just under one course. So I think we really have an opportunity here, especially if we could get people in cohorts to come through, and then we could probably tailor the program more to a group of seven to 10 people, and you could knock it out in a couple semesters. And we'd be happy to help provide any kind of assistance in that way. Thank you, Derek. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be part of this process. And of course, your podcast, I mean, Good Grief, Any Human Trafficking has been around for over a decade now. So it's always a pleasure to be a part of it. Thank you both for this conversation. We're inviting you to take the next step to go over to endinghumantrafficking.org. That's where you can find a ton of the resources we've mentioned in this conversation, including information on the certificate program that Sandy and Derek and so many here at the Global Center for Women and Justice and Vanguard University have worked tirelessly over recent years to put together and with the options that we've now mentioned. So we're inviting you to do that. And if you haven't visited that site before, that's also a great first step for you. If you go online there, you're going to find an opportunity to download a copy of Sandy's guide, The Five Things You Must Know, a quick start guide to ending human trafficking. It'll help you identify the five critical things that we have been researching in our work that you should know before you join the fight against human trafficking. You can get access to it just by going over to endinghumantrafficking.org. And a reminder that our next conference is upcoming very soon, March 3rd and 4th, 2023. Details for the Ensure Justice Conference are at gcwj.org slash insurejustice. You can join us here in Southern California for our annual event and an opportunity to learn so much more and perhaps just as importantly, if not more so, to build the relationships and connections in person with so many others who have a heart to support the work that we're doing to end human trafficking. Hope you'll go over to endinghumantrafficking.org for all the details there. And of course, we will be back in two weeks for our next conversation. 